Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit are things of the Spirit. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Father, as we come into this portion of the word and examine the truths that you have recorded herein, that you would reveal to us the the meaning and, and the importance and the reality of it, that it might find, provide a secure foundation for our souls as we learn evermore to rest in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So we ask for your blessing as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The concept of condemnation uh, whenever you have a trial, there are a lot of terms that go into trial. You've got witnesses, you've got testimony, you've got exhibits, you've got judgments, and then you've got this accusa- you've got accusations, but then you've also got condemnation. And uh, I think of a judgment, I mean, there's different ways that you can look, or different, I don't know all the technical terms and so forth, but there is the aspect where you find somebody guilty. You go in and you got your plea. Are you guilty or not guilty? Evidence is looked at. You know, if the plea is not guilty, then they pull up the evidence and they bring out the witnesses and they examine, cross-examine, and ask questions and everything else to uh, lay it out there and to determine whether or not the plea is accurate. Is the party actually not guilty or does the evidence point otherwise? And so if the evidence is strong enough, then the uh, determination will be that the party is guilty. Well, that's not condemnation. To determine that somebody is guilty is not a condemnation. And then you've got the, after the party's been determined guilty, there comes a time period when the, uh, the judge pronounces a sentence and says, this is what your sentence is going to be for the crime that you've committed. And I think that pronouncement of sentencing, that judgment passed, that's the condemnation. When you are uh, held accountable for what you have done. And so what he says here, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, you are not held accountable for what you have done in the past. And he explains, of course, why that is through throughout chapters 4 and 5. And when he talks about justification, he says that you are made righteous. And the justification that he talks about in chapter, in, especially well, in, in 3 and 4, he emphasizes in chapter 4, uh, say if you look at verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now notice how Paul phrases this. What does Abraham have to say? What is he found according to the flesh? So now Paul is going to look at Abraham from the perspective of the flesh. If Abraham was going to live according to the flesh, what has he found? 
What does he mean by according to the flesh? Well, he goes on in verse 2, he says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So according to the flesh are the works. The works are connected to the flesh. What you do is, obviously, is done in your body. You, you can have all the good intentions of the world inside your heart and inside your mind. But if those intentions are not carried out by your body, then they don't become works. Nothing happens. A work is when something actually happens in the physical realm. It's not just a good intention in the spiritual realm or at the soul level, but it's something that actually takes place in the physical realm. And so with the flesh, then, is works. Good works or bad works. And Paul makes the case that if Abraham was justified by good works, in other words, if he did things, not just this, not just had good attitudes or had good intentions, but if he actually did things, actions that pleased God enough to the point where Abraham or God would say, "You know, you have done so well. I am going to grant you righteousness." That he is going, that he wins the grace of God. If that was the case, that if Abraham found that according to the flesh he could do all these different things, he could offer his son up on the altar or what have you, and doing these things would bring him into the grace of God, then he would have something to boast about. And Paul says that that's ridiculous. When you think of boasting before God, there's does not compute. It's an oxymoron. It contradicts itself. No boasting before God. And he goes on to talk about how the scripture declares that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that believing was a response to what God had said. So it wasn't that Abraham had done something that had impressed God. It was that God spoke something that impressed Abraham. And he believed in God when he heard the promise that God spoke. And that was the promise that God would give him a son who would make him a nation and make his descendants like the stars of the sky, that you couldn't, couldn't count them for a multitude. And so Abraham, hearing that promise, was impressed by God, and he responded by believing what God said. He did not say, you know, that sounds really nice, but I'm not sure you can actually carry that out, being that we don't have any children. That's, that's pretty much an impossible. No, Abraham was impressed by God, and he responded, believed. <coughs> so it wasn't, that he, it wasn't what he did. It was his response to God's word. So he goes, Paul goes on then through chapter 4, driving home the point that justification is by faith. You are made righteous not because of what you do, which is pretty common for us to think about. Uh, I think we like, as Christians, to think that we don't think that way, but I think we do, uh, that we fall into the same kind of trap that we have to, that in order to become a good Christian, we have to do certain things. If you do these things, follow these practices, or what have you, you'll become a good Christian, as if you'll attain some level of righteousness by doing good things. And that, I, I mean, I know we think that all the time. We do. Uh, we get discouraged that if we're not doing good things, that we've really fallen out of favor of God. And uh, 
And then we watch other people, and if they're not doing the good things, we say, well, they, they have a long ways to go before they'll please God. And so we think in those, uh, in those terms. It's our tendency as people. And so Paul spends a lot of time emphasizing that the justification does not come by our works, but it comes by faith. And then when he gets to chapter 5, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, this is how it, we think, we have a tendency to think that by doing good, if we can be good enough, then we will have that peace with God. And when they talk about peace, you got to think in the terms of like living among your neighbors. Uh, if you're at peace with your neighbor, that means that there is a friendship that the, it's not just enough to, it's not just that you live next to your neighbor and you're not fighting with them. To be at peace with your neighbor means that you are uh, enjoying each other's company and living next to each other. So he's saying that uh, we have peace with God in, this, in the sense that it's not that by becoming really good, by doing these works that are in the flesh, these, these um, uh, physical works, we don't, by becoming a good Christian, we don't arrive at peace with God. Peace with God comes through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ recognizing that great truth which we believe that uh, God shows us his grace, his goodness and his good favor because, because we stand in Christ, because we believe in him. So we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, through him, we have access into God's grace. We have this access by faith, not by being good. It's by believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is in that grace, and in Christ we enter that grace as well, and that's the reality of the matter. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. These things he mentions in verse 3 here, because tribulation is a physical thing. It's something that Things go wrong in life when things don't work out the way, you know, it looks like from our physical perspective that things aren't working out and would indicate to us then that maybe God isn't, doesn't approve of us any longer. That's why things are going wrong. Because that's our tendency too, is we tend to think that way. But if we stand in the faith that God uh, has favor upon us because we are in Christ, then even when things go wrong, we are not discouraged with regards to our peace with God. We still have peace with God, with fellowship, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, the tribulations do not discourage us, but instead we see that God works good things as a result of the tribulation, so you go through tribulation, you recognize that this is a hard time, but it's only temporary because I'm in the grace of God. And so when the end of all things and the end of all this physical realm occurs, 
I will be in the grace of God and this tribulation will be over. And so having that perspective then, you endure. It produces perseverance and then it develops character and hope and so forth. He, and uh, he says, we will not, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it is the Spirit that produces in us the confidence of these truths. We can know that we are justified in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are accepted by God and we stand in the grace, but it is the Spirit that makes these things come alive in us so that it actually is true in our hearts and in that uh, as he makes known to us the love of God. So there's a difference. You have the that which is according to the flesh, which is by works, and you have the love poured out by the Spirit, which is the grace of God. And he goes on to describe when we were here's here's an example of the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Is it's like first verse six and onward is an example of the Holy Spirit making truths known to us that are uh, that gladden our hearts. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now when you're standing there and realize that you have not been living the way you ought to live, and this truth is brought to your attention by the working of the Holy Spirit, it has an impact. I stand there in my sin and I say, oh God, how come I can't do what is right? How come I keep on failing? And the Holy Spirit would remind us that, remember back in the day when you were without strength, you had no strength, when you were in your sin, that at that time Christ died for you? Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good one someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a wonderful truth that when I was in my sins, he died for me. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. These are the truths that the Holy Spirit makes come alive in our hearts. And in these truths, then, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access by faith into the grace of God. So there's two ways to try to stand in the grace of God. One is by works. If I do good, then God will return good to me. The other way is recognize it is the truth that God has done good for me in the Lord Jesus Christ and responding to that by believing it. It's either by the flesh or by the spirit. It's our choice on which way to go. Sometimes when we stand there and recognize our own shortcomings in the flesh. These truths <clears throat> told us in Romans 8 are good to grab hold of, that even though I feel like a failure, even though I feel like I'm in sin, I can't do what I ought to do, and life is all a mess, there is this truth that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Whether I feel it is true, whether I act like it is true, doesn't change the reality of whether or not it is true. 
There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. What did Abraham, our father, find according to the flesh? He found that if you were justified by works, you would have something to boast about, but that is not the case. So if we walk according to the flesh, that means we are walking according to the efforts of the flesh to do what is good so that we can find the grace of God. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If we walk according to the Spirit, it's again to grab hold or respond to the reality that the Spirit reveals to us as he pours out the love of God, showing to us that God, while we were still sinners, gave his Son to die for us. These things are true, and we respond like Abraham in believing that. Those people, to those people who believe like Abraham, there is no condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus. The law, or as I mentioned a while back, the truism, because this is not talking about the type of law where you do this or else you be punished. This is the law that is like the law of gravity. It just is the way it is. It's a truism. The truism of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> that in Christ I am alive before God. That is, I am in his grace. I am not condemned. The truism of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the truism of sin and death. The truism of sin and death is described, uh, you know, as described elsewhere in, in, uh, in Romans. Truism of sin and death is if you sin, you shut, you will die. That's been stated since Genesis chapter two. You break God's command, you will die. And so every time I go into sin, the guilt of it, uh, you know, I just, it creates a death of fellowship between me and God. But the truism of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus makes me free of that truism of sin and death. There is no sin and death when I'm in Christ Jesus. There is sin and mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. What the law could not do, and this law is not a truism law, he is referencing back to the uh, law of chapter 7, the uh, commands of God, do this or else you shall die, type of law. And the intention, the, the purpose of the law was to turn people from their sin. You tell people if you do this you will die, that should be a deterrence that people won't do it. But it doesn't work, people still sin even though they know the consequences. So what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, could not stop sin, but furthermore, it could not do this one other thing, which God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. As we talked about this morning, that... Uh, that God was able to condemn the sin without condemning the person, uh, which law is not able to do. The law condemns the sin and the person. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Lord Jesus became a man, and as a man, he had a body, and so his body went through that judgment of death there on the cross, bearing our sins in his body on the tree, and so God condemns sin in the flesh 
while exonerating the, per the person. I don't know if exonerating is right. What I mean is like while glorifying the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, "My the hour is coming and now is. I forget what it is. It's that one where he talks about in John 14, I think. Well, John 13, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Talking about how the Son of Man is glorified, he was talking about the cross. And God would glorify him there at the cross. So while the Lord's body bearing our sin was uh, <coughs> facing that judgment of death, the Lord himself was being glorified. And so God condemns sin in the flesh while glorifying his son. And he did this in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And a curious phrase here, the righteous requirement of the law. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is that the law told us not to do certain things because they were wrong. And it wasn't that God's intent was he just wanted us to stop murdering, but if you do everything up to murdering, you know, beat them within an inch of their life, but as long as they survive, you're okay. That's not what God is saying, that that was the only line. Everything else was okay up until you hit that line. The law was telling us this is what sin is. The opposite is righteousness. You need to do righteousness. So that... Uh, as the Lord, when the Lord Jesus came, he told the people, he said, look, you say that you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, I mean, yes, that's what the law says, love your neighbor. But the righteous requirement of the law is to love even your enemies. That's what God does. He loves his enemies. And so that is righteousness. So the righteous requirement of the law is righteousness. And he says that God has condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, so what he's saying is that we might produce righteousness. We might fulfill what the law was looking for. The law was stated to stop sin, but it was looking for righteousness. That will be produced in us. It will be fulfilled in us. <clears throat> fulfilled in us, specific group, us, as in those who do not rock according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it seems like to achieve righteousness, you keep the law. But as Paul pointed out in Romans 2 and 3 and 4, you don't produce righteousness by keeping the law. You cannot produce righteousness by keeping the law. So it can't, the righteousness requirement of the law cannot be fulfilled in people who walk according to the flesh. It can only be fulfilled by people who walk according to the Spirit. That is, if they rest in the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And then he explains how or why this is. Those who live according to the flesh, those who uh, count on works, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. They do things that are based in the here and now. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So if you're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're thinking about your mindset is there in the work that the Lord has done. 
the grace that God has shown. If your mind is set on doing good works, and by that I will please God, then your, your focus is on what I can do, whether I succeed or whether I fail. That's what it's looking at, is whether I succeed or whether I fail in trying to do what is good. And your mind is in the spirit, and it's looking at what God has done and how the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross accomplished all that was necessary to bring us into the grace of God. To be carnally minded is death. If you're going to be focused on what you can do, it's going to lead to death. But to be spiritually minded is, in fact, life and peace. If I'm looking at what I do and I see that, oh my, I failed and not lived the way I ought to, I haven't done this thing or I haven't followed that thing, and these things that I know to be true, oh, my heart is discouraged. I can't break free of the sin and would that I could break free of this. It's death. To be discouraged and borne down by sin and and broken up and uh, defeated in the sense that I can't do what I ought to do type of thing. That's not life and peace. That's not enjoying peace with God. That is death. Now to be spiritually minded, to be recognizing that uh, <clears throat> that God when I was a sinner, sent his son to die for me. That is life and peace. Even if I am failing, even if I'm not living the way that I ought to live, there is life and peace and resting in Christ. This is the reality is, when I'm not living the way I ought to live, that's only when I'm aware that I'm not living the way I ought to live. There are times where I may think I'm living the way I ought to live. <clears throat> there has been a lot of times where I've been thinking I've been living the way I ought to live. Come to find out later that I was not living the way I ought to live. So I was happy, even though I wasn't living the way. I mean, we, why, why do we think that we we don't we don't we don't live according to the will of God like the Lord Jesus lived? So it's absolutely true that by resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though I'm not living the way up to live, is life and peace. And he says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to allow God, nor indeed can be. And that's the big problem that's ever since the fall. Because at the fall, when we gained the knowledge of good and evil, we decided for ourselves what was good or what was bad. So whenever we keep the law, and it's, it's a weird situation to be in. <clears throat> Let's say I've got the knowledge of good news. So let's say I'm, I'm deciding for myself what is good and what is bad. I see that God gives a command. He says, okay, whoever sins dies. And so I am, uh, what do you call it? I'm encouraged or compelled to do what is right. I want to do what is right. I decided in my heart, I want to do what is right. Why do I want to do what is right? Well, so I don't get killed in you know, I want to have life. It's it's better for me to do what is right so that I don't get judgmented. Well, in that situation, I'm looking for my own benefit. I'm not looking for what God is wanting. I'm looking for myself. How is that pleasing to God? If I'm keeping God's law just because it benefits me, how can that possibly please God? 
the carnal mind is enmity against God. I'm doing what I do for my benefit, and it has no concern about what God's will is. Even if I'm trying to do God's will, it's only for my own benefit. It's, it's, in, and it's what Paul is saying. is that carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Nor can The only reason why I obey the law of God is because it benefits me, not because God commanded it. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's an impossibility. That's why keeping the law does not reach righteousness. You can't do it. Because the reason we do it is not because it's God's will. It's because I'm trying to save my own skin. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. So basically, he's making known to us that whoever saved, which is obvious. I mean, if you're in the spirit, if you have that truth of God, and you respond to that truth of God, believe in that truth of God, that he has provided a savior for you, forgiveness of your sins, your sins are off the table now, and you stand in the grace of God, because that's where the Lord Jesus Christ is at. You rest in faith in him. If you are in the spirit, he's talking now about saved people. Where the Spirit of God dwells in you, where that truth is made known in your heart, you know it inside that God has forgiven your sins, that he smiles upon you because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Uh, you are his. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now this phrase in verse 10 is referring back to chapter 6. When he talks about our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, we should no longer be slaves of sin. He who has died has been freed from sin. It's the idea that what he says in Romans 6 is that when you come to Christ, you are saying, the old life that I've been living, whether I was keeping the law or whether I was indulging in sin, either or, doesn't matter, the old life is detrimental to me. It's not even valueless. It's actually detrimental. And so I've turned to Christ because I need a Savior. And everything I've done in the past has done nothing to bring me into the grace of God. I need a Savior to deliver me from my sin. You are saying the old life no good anymore. It is a dying to the old life. When we go into Christ, when we put ourselves, when we claim his death, we are putting to death everything behind us. We're recognizing that doesn't work. This is the only one who is going to save. Only way for salvation. So when we are, when Christ is in us, when we are saved, the body, the old fleshly body full of its desires, it's dead because it's not that it doesn't cease to function, but it's been uh, accounted as dead. Like it, it no longer, I am not looking to my flesh to bring me into the grace of God. It's I can do whatever I want to my flesh. I can do good. I can do bad. It doesn't affect whether or not I'm in the grace of God. It's dead. And why do I count my body that way? Why do I say the things that I do have nothing, no impact on whether or not I'm in the grace of God? 
if I do a good and follow as a Christian like I should, that does not impact whether I'm in the grace of God, does not bring me farther into the grace of God. If I do evil and fall into sin, it does not impact whether or not I'm in the grace of God. Why do I say that? Why don't I look to anything I do? Well, because of sin. Everything in the body is carnal-minded, whether I'm doing good or whether I'm doing evil. I've got wrong motives doing good, and I got sometimes i got good motives and doing bad. So the body is dead because of sin. It doesn't, it doesn't count anymore. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. He, it, what he has done is placed me in the grace of God. And it doesn't matter if I'm good or bad, so to speak. I'm in the grace of God. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Again, he's referencing concepts back from chapter 6. If you died with Christ, you shall also live with him. Who was it that raised Jesus from the dead? What was the spirit? That was all of Godhead, but he's bringing our attention to the work that the spirit did in raising Christ from the dead. When, or sorry, it was the father he who raised Christ from the dead. Oh, it's a, that's funny. He puts both in there. The first half of the verse, the spirit of him who raised up Christ from the dead. So the spirit, and then the second half focuses on the father, he who raised Christ from the dead. But anyhow, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All of the stuff that he's gone through is to explain in this from verses 5 to 11. From the 4 in verse 5, for those who live according to flesh, up to verse 11, all of that is explaining what the, how the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk in the Spirit. So the question we got in verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to flesh, but according to spirit. How is that possible? How is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us who walk according to spirit? And verses 5 through 11 are intended to answer that. First, he shows how the flesh is unable to produce the righteous requirement. And then he tells us in verses 10 and 11 that God will produce the righteousness. He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will place inside of us the desire to do what is right because he wants us to do what is right. So in the flesh, if my desire to do what is right, or if I have a desire to do what is right, what motivates that desire is I'm trying to find favor from God. I'm trying to escape condemnation. If I'm in the Spirit, I'm not afraid of trying to escape condemnation. I already have peace with God. So what motive do I have to do what is right? There's no punishment that I have to worry about. There's no reward that I have to look for. Why do I want to do what is right? Well, because God wants me to do what is right. Is the only motive. 
And of course, as a Christian, I can still grab onto the old motive and say, well, I'm trying to find favor with God, so I'm going to do this, 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 and the other thing. If we're in the Spirit, the only motive when I'm in the Spirit, when I'm in it, and it works like this. I mean, you sit there and you're like, can you believe what God has done for me as a sinner? It raises up a desire to do what is right. And so he gives life and fulfills the righteous requirement because the righteous requirement of law is not just doing what is right, it's doing the will of God. And that's the part that the carnal mind can't do. remember one time when I saw this demonstrated in my own life, there was a, a guy that worked for, when I was working with dad, you know, ACB construction, that Eric Gwynn is his last name, remember that, was he Vietnamese, that Asian guy or whatever, Korean, so Travis had been talking to him and he was feeling pretty guilty about his sin and so forth, and, and the time when he was going to leave, uh, he was having problems with his marriage, and so he decided best to separate, so he was going to leave, he was going to move away. And uh, I knew that he was uh, under guilt, and I knew that he was right for salvation. I knew he wasn't saved. And so I arranged with him to meet him for breakfast that day he was going to leave. And so I got up in the morning, and I spent some time in the Word, spent some time in prayer, because I knew that I needed to have my heart prepared so that I could be a vessel fit for God's use. That's what I had in my mind. So I was purifying my mind as best I could to try to remove all impure thoughts and everything else, going through the Word, praying, and things like that. And about five minutes before I had to leave, after I felt I got myself all purified up as best as I could, and I got to thinking about going out and meeting Eric, and then thought, what would happen if he got saved? As soon as that thought hit, I could see the pride just well up. That'd be so cool, man. Leave this guy till everyone was right down. The pride was just thick and heavy, right on the spot. And I remember crying out to the Lord. I was like, Lord, this is not good. Uh, I have to meet him in five minutes. I don't have time to deal with the pride. I can't get that put back. I mean, I can't get rid of that. It so saturates me that. I'm going to have to go and try to fumble around, share the gospel with him, being full of pride. And that's what I had to do. Knowing that I was not a vessel fit, but I didn't have any choice, I had to go, and he got saved. Weirdest thing. This is the truth that he is talking about, that he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That by resting in him, grabbing hold of that grace, even though I be a sinner, he is able to produce that righteousness, even in the midst of my sin. And so as I think on these verses and this truth in here of the work that God does for Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 12 just makes all kinds of sense. It just flows. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
sins. <laughs> God hasn't forgiven our sins that we can try ever so hard now, get a fresh new start at trying to stay in the grace of God. If you live according to flesh, even as a believer, if you live according to flesh, you will die. And he's talking about the sense of fellowship with God. If you're going to try to be a good Christian, you will die. Your fellowship will be ruined, you'll be struggling, you'll be frustrated, you will not have peace with God. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if I see my failures... If I'm standing in that courtroom and the verdict is handed out, they don't even have to hand out the verdict. There I stand in the courtroom, I'll give you the verdict myself. I'm guilty. That's obvious. There's no point that I don't get judged to tell me that. The plea is guilty. But I don't care if I'm guilty. Because of the love of God, I don't when I say I don't care, what I mean is that as far as peace with God is concerned, my guilt does not peace. That's the sin that Jesus died for. So if you put to death the deeds of the body, you don't, you don't count on the works of the flesh to make me accepted by God. You will live. You are in the Spirit, and the truth of the Spirit, and the love of the God is shed abroad in your heart through the Spirit. You will live, even though you be a sinner. Many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. The spirit of bondage is what he talked about in chapter 7. The obligation to keep the law. You don't have a choice of whether or not you can keep the law or not. You're compelled to, and if you don't keep it, you will die. And you're bound to that obligation until death do you part. So that's what he said in chapter 7. He references it now in verse 15. You do not receive the spirit of bondage. Do this and you shall live. Do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What son loses his sonship because he disobeys his dad? If he has a good father, is the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I probably should close... I'm thinking about that concept of suffering. If we suffer with him, what sufferings is he talking about? Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. The earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He's explaining to us what this suffering is. The creation itself is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So, creation is suffering under the bondage of corruption. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now to suffer under the bondage of the corruption of sin. That's the sufferings he must be talking about. 
if we're going to stick to the context. There are two ways <clears throat> to look at this. You can have a person who says, oh, I'm in the grace of God, and I can do whatever I want. And they live in the bondage of their sin however they want to, and they have no regrets. That's not going to work. We are heirs of God, joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. If we groan like creation groans because of the bondage of the corruption. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body, looking forward to that time when the bondage of corruption no longer has hold on us. That's the suffering I think he's talking about. We are saved in this hope. And it's frustrating sometimes because you suffer under the bondage of corruption and can't break free of it. And it's like, what good is this salvation? I can't break free from this, this corruption that the salvation is supposed to break me free from. It's a future deliverance yet. If it was present day, then it would not be a salvation of hope. But it is a salvation of hope. We are saved in this hope. The redemption of our body. That one day we will be delivered from this bondage of corruption. Hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one hope for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. Therefore we wait for it with perseverance. And the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. The weakness of being under... And that's what happens is that we... Because we're in the body of the flesh, we still experience these... The same thing that creation experiences, the bondage, of that, that groaning of underneath the bondage of corruption. That's still there. The Spirit helps us in that weakness of the groaning under the bondage of, 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 uh, of sin, the bondage of corruption. He helps us in that weakness, praying, because we don't know how to pray, but by revealing to us the truth of God so that we rest in the grace of God and not weighed down by the bondage of corruption. We do not know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be groaned, which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we don't have time to go through the rest of the verses, but you could take verse, 9, verse 28 and 29 and look at how these verses played out true in the life of Abraham. Every phrase in there, all things work together for good, that worked out in Abraham. We can look at what kind of good worked out. And he was the called according to God's purpose. And he was foreknown, Abraham was, and he was predestined. And he was, in this case, it's the firstborn among many brethren. Well, he was the father of many nations. And being predestined, he was called. And being called, he was justified. And being justified, his God is all applied to Abraham. And you apply it to Abram and you see how it worked out in Abram's life. It makes a ton more sense. And it fits in the context because what God did in Abram was he worked out the good of Abram being able to trust in God and rest in the truth of the promise. This is the good. That God works. All things work out together to teach us to trust in him. What shall we say then to these things if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son 
And he goes back to chapter 5 here. Did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with them also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And so on and so forth. May these truths become real in our hearts. So, Father, we thank you for what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your spirit. We ask that he would continue in that work to make clear to us the reality, the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are stand in your grace in him. We thank you for your great love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.